0: Hello. This is Changing Climate, Changing Migration. Coming to you from the Migration Policy Institute, this is a podcast all about how climate change is upending and, in some cases, preventing migration. I'm Julian Haddam. I'm the editor of MPI's Migration Information Source, which is our online magazine providing data and analysis about international migration around the world. This podcast is part of MPI's focus on climate change and migration, you can read more online at migrationpolicy.org climate. For today, our podcast might as well be called Changing Climate, No Migration. We're talking about trapped populations, which is a term that's been used to describe people who might be better off migrating away from disaster areas, but for whatever reason, cannot. For these people, migration might be their best option, but climate change or other factors are making that impossible. My guest is Caroline Sickraff. She is the deputy director of the Hugo Observatory at the University of Liège in Belgium. I want to begin by talking about why being stuck in place might be so bad. I guess it seems obvious why someone might want to evacuate to escape a hurricane or a wildfire or some other fast onset climate event, but it's not quite so clear why migration or displacement is a good idea for people facing slower onset hazards like extreme heat, drought, sea level rise, things like that. Can you explain that to me? Why might it be better to flee away from those kinds of hazards?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think migration can provide Three things. I'd say one would be safety, two would be security, and three would be opportunity. So in terms of safety, of course, it's more obvious when we talk about sudden onset events, why someone would want to evacuate and that even displacement becomes a life-saving strategy. But this also holds true for slower onset events. So when we see those creeping effects of climate change, they still prevent provide or present physical threats. So when you're facing coastal erosion and sea level rise, we see houses partially or entirely falling into the sea. So migrating or moving even short distances can provide a very real physical sense of safety. Um, And then in terms of security, security in kind of a broader sense of human security. So migration can provide, one of the things we talk about, most often is financial security. So for the people who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, a lot of times those people are living in rural areas depending on natural resources. So farming communities, fishers, people engaged in forestry, and any of those livelihoods that depend on uh, natural resources are under threat when we look at temperature rise, erratic rainfall, Um, Again, soil salinization linked to to coastal flooding. And so migrating can provide a much more stable and secure type of livelihood. So you're no longer thinking about, well, what happens if this harvest is uh, not productive? So migration gets you out of that insecure economic circumstance, but also provides of psychological benefits of security too when you're not again wondering is my house going to fall into the sea am i going to be able to make my basic meet my basic needs so migration provides those sense of uh, those types of security as well as you know social benefits social networks and all of these other ways in which people can just improve their their well-being and then lastly in terms of opportunity i don't think that this is necessarily unique to context of climate change but in any sense, migration can provide opportunities for people. Again, economic, again, physical uh, opportunity, uh, physical safety, but also, you know, educational opportunities, things that you can learn through migration and uh, develop skills that can also be brought back to communities of origin. So it can be benefits for the people who migrate, but it's also about the benefits that that can provide for the people who stay, right? Allowing people not to depend on what's happening to their natural environments, even if they themselves never migrate, by receiving remittances. And again, that's not just financial, receiving money from migrants abroad, but also receiving um, transfer of skills, of knowledge, of technology, for example.
0: Mm -hmm. And so then, I guess, what is preventing that movement? I guess, what is trapping people in place, precisely?
1: When people are trapped in context of, of climate change, it's similar to how we think about why people move, in terms of there is no one answer. there's not, even in context of climate change, when uh, it's very apparent that uh, their environment is deteriorating, there's not just one reason people move. And there's not just one reason people can't move. So it can be um, something like financial resources. So any type of migration, even if that's precarious, it takes some type of resources. So you might need money to move, but you also might need social networks that extend beyond the place that you live. So it's not just about, can I leave, but where would I go to? Where Who's going to provide accommodation for me? Or how am I going to find a job there? So if I don't know anyone that can help me, that can be a way of or a means of trapping people. So that can be a trapping factor. And also the physical ability to move. So if I can't, you know, if I have a person with a disability, for example, well, migration is not as, as you know, easy as, as it is for people who maybe can physically move much easier. And that you know aligns us all with age. But also, again, if I'm a retired person and I'm elderly, well, what am I going to do when I get there? How am I going to provide uh, for myself or for others? So it can be any number of social factors as well that trap people in place, that prevent people from moving even when they want to. And then I think another big one to highlight is how politics affect uh, ability to move. So it's not just about, you know, is climate change happening or not happening? And am I suffering from climate change and unable to move? But if there aren't opportunities for people to migrate, whether that's to the nearby city, whether that's to another country, that in itself can can trap people so politics have a big say in who goes and who stays that might be through migration policies you know who is offered those opportunities who has access to visas who has access to um, international movements but again internal movements and um, but it's also about you know development policies it's about how we you know treat poverty and are those people who are poor able to pay for a visa so all of these things that kind of collide together again not one thing but all of these factors social political economic environmental and demographic colliding to to keep people in place
0: and you answered this a bit but i'm, I'm curious if there if there is a profile of people who are most likely to be trapped in place you talked about the elderly people with disabilities people who are poor don't have a lot of money I mean, is there anyone that I'm missing there that's kind of very obviously is disproportionately likely to be stuck in place even while everyone around them moves?
1: Sure. Well, it's always an intersection of vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult for me to say, you know, this group, you know, women uh, or elderly or children, Mm -hmm. or it's often about maybe women who are depending on agriculture in rural areas um, who may be at a disadvantage or who are marginalized populations that again don't have those resources, that have amplified vulnerabilities to begin with, um, that then don't have access to the same migration opportunities and are then more likely to, to become trapped. But it's of course never a given. It's never a given that just because a woman is a woman, you know, she's not able to migrate. In some countries and contexts, we see women have more migration opportunities um, and maybe Mm -hmm. because of their skill sets and demand um, a certain country. So we look at countries like the Philippines, where women have a lot of migration opportunities, and it's not always the same profile in every country. Although we do sometimes see, again, these intersections of um, poverty, of gender, of... um, physical ability of age um colliding to to be trapping uh populations
0: and we're talking in this con- this conversation is about climate change but you've you mentioned before i think this is not necessarily a dynamic that is unique to people in communities affected by climate change right both I mean, conflict economic crises but also just relative general poverty seem to also affect the situation i mean i guess is that fair? Is there anything unique about people trapped, quote unquote, amid climate uh, climate in climate affected areas by or amid climate events? Or is it similar to people trapped amid and by uh, climate economic crisis? Anything else?
1: I think it is very similar in many cases. So we talk about trap populations. I think it's taking a particular foothold as an idea and a concept when it comes to climate change. Um, because that's where we've been talking about it and studying it, but it doesn't mean it's unique to to that context. Again, we can think about poverty and how that affects trapping people in environmental contexts, but we can also think about how poverty traps people at large and prevents them from being able to migrate when they want to migrate. Conflict is a big one, of course. When you talk about, again, another type of crisis that people are facing where migration or even displacement might be some sort of um, option Uh, and in conflict again maybe that prevents your movement from sometimes the same reasons as it does in environmental context but also these things can happen at the same time so in a lot of places you see conflict and climate change coming together and sometimes they work together to trap people so There's a conflict going on and I'm facing a drought, so I'm not able to use my normal mobility strategies. Normally, maybe I would move to the next town over during the off season to offset that that risk uh, to my livelihood. But hey, there's a conflict going on and I'm not able to do that. So that can have kind of a double trapping effect. Or sometimes what we've seen, for example, in, in the Sahel is that people might want to move because of the um, environment, or they might want to stay in a place because of the environment, but then because of conflict, they're kind of assessing risk. So what is the most imminent threat to me? You know, is it my failing crop or is it, you know, this very physical threat to an imminent threat to my life provided by conflict? So sometimes people are having to make choices uh, between that's based on, you know, multiple forms of risk colliding and, and having to oftentimes people choose um, you know, the safety versus conflict but rather than the environment. Um, but of course, these things are unique in some ways in an environmental context where you don't see conflict at the same time, I think, because you have different actors at play, for one. So if you're in a place that's relatively politically stable, you're not facing conflict. Now, what is the role of the government? And that changes, again, in terms of what are the solutions, who are crafting those solutions uh, versus a conflict situation where maybe the government is not able to to respond to that um, or intervene in in the people who are trapped in, in their lives and help them out. But in context of climate change, we have more people who are in governments who should, at least, Uh, be involved and be able to implement solutions in different ways than we might see in a conflict situation. Now, on the other hand, if I can say that in some cases, conflict, we have legal mechanisms to protect people in conflict uh, displacement scenarios. So refugees, right? There's such a thing Mm -hmm. as a refugee status. So if you cross a border and you claim asylum, Ideally, not always, you're able to gain some sort of legal protection, but we don't have that when it comes to climate. So mm-hmm. if you can't cross a border and claim, you know, asylum based on climate change, you actually have fewer options at your disposal. So you may be trapped in that sense because I don't have, I can't, even if I could physically cross that border, there's nothing waiting for me there in terms of protection. So that missing uh, protection mechanism at least internationally is different to to a conflict situation
0: yeah which goes back to the the point you were making earlier about one of the many things that traps people is the legal systems or lack thereof i guess um but i also want to i guess i want to talk about solutions by governments by ngos but i also and i'm sure i'm curious on the one hand what are those solutions what should or could these governments organizations be doing but also how do we distinguish between people who want to leave and cannot, and people who don't want to leave and would prefer to stay in place? And how how, how do we make that distinction? Is that always an obvious line? And how, how do you try and support the former, the people who want to leave, without uh, running the risk of forcing people off their land, which is, you know, incredibly historically contentious activity? And how do you, as a government, balance that? And how do you, as a researcher kind of deal with those uh seemingly inherent ambiguities about motivations and what people want to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This is a difficult it's a difficult distinction to make. I'm not sure we can always make it between people who mm-hmm. are trapped and people who choose to stay. And I think this is something we've seen kind of historically with how we talk about migration and climate change is, and perhaps that's because of the political nature of uh, of this discussion, is that you know before we used to always talk about, or people or media or the public would talk about climate refugees and kind of forget that there are people who migrate for all those reasons we mentioned before, because it can be a beneficial thing. It can be a strategy to adapt to climate change and not necessarily a failure to adapt. So we have this right like, black and white, okay, migration is a bad thing and staying in place is assumed to be good and now we've kind of switched a little bit because we've introduced this narrative about migration as adaptation strategy and that hey this is not always bad and hey staying in place can be bad and so we focused a lot on people becoming trapped and not necessarily acknowledged that there's also nuance in immobility so as you said, there are a lot of people who choose to stay. And that's for a number of of reasons. But there are people who are suffering many of the same consequences as the people who go or the people who become trapped, but don't want to leave. And the distinction can be clear, can be, hey, I just don't want to go. My family is here. Um, This is the place that I grew up. This is where i want to stay and i don't care even in most dire circumstances i would rather die here than move somewhere else Mm -hmm. but distinguishing between the ability to move and the desire to move it's a gray zone so for example with the people that i work with sometimes people will say well no i can't go but i don't want to because again my i have to take care of my my parents my elderly parents so If I leave, who's gonna take care of them? Now we could say that that's being trapped, but that person might not say, no, I'm not trapped. I want to take care of my family. I want to be there for them. And so there are a lot of these um, gray zones between voluntary immobility and involuntary immobility, which is why we usually say it's a spectrum, right? It's a spectrum Mm -hmm. of agency. Just like with migration, there are situations that are more forced and there are situations that are more voluntary, um, but there are always constraints and, in some cases, opportunities. So voluntary immobility, in some cases, we might say, oh, those other people don't have any problems. They want to stay because they're not affected by climate change. You know, maybe they're the really wealthy people in a community. Maybe they have really great houses that can withstand hurricanes and can withstand coastal erosion. And so it's really just the people who who go that are the problem and that we need to help. But a lot of times, even those most vulnerable populations, most vulnerable people may still be the ones who say, hey, I don't want to leave. And solutions then become complex. So Mm -hmm. just like everything, we want a simple narrative, we want a simple solution. It's just not the case. Uh, You -hmm. need complex solutions for complex problems. So, governments supporting uh, people who become trapped, or NGOs, or international organizations, for me, whether it's about becoming trapped or, or involuntary mobile, it does change the character of the solution. Because if we think of people who become trapped as those people who need to move, who want to move, but can't move, then we think about how can programs and policies provide people migration opportunities? or relocation opportunities. Because we don't need to convince them, right? We just need to give them those pathways. That might be Mm -hmm. bilateral agreements, that might be visas, that might be relocation programs where we relocate, you know, an entire community that's affected by, uh, repeatedly affected by flooding, and we move them uh, somewhere else, obviously with their consent. But when it's about involuntary, or sorry, voluntary immobility, Now, relocation, for example, that type of policy mechanism becomes more difficult because how do you convince people who don't want to move to move? That involves that much more consultation, that much more understanding why, what is keeping people in place and how might you address those those needs somewhere else? But ultimately, it becomes in either situation about enabling the right to stay as much as the right to go. So policies that are focused on choice rather than focused on privileging a migration outcome. So saying nobody should leave or everybody should leave. It's never going to be that simple. That's never gonna work. So we can't just stop migration and we can't just facilitate it. It really has to be again about choice and human rights-based approaches.
0: So I guess ideally you present, you you make a system so that both moving away or not moving away are equally easy, right? There's a framework to do both and then the individual can choose all of us being equal, which they personally wanted to do. Yeah. Are there, is it are there like examples from the world that we can look at? I know managed relocation, planned relocation, things you've talked about have been uh, on the rise, particularly in the Pacific islands, but also elsewhere. I mean, are, are those, effective solutions? Are there effective solutions that you have seen implemented in the real world that um, even if they do not apply to every situation, were at least good for that particular situation?
1: Yes. So there are, of course, relocation programs that, you know, have been done considering what people want. And so, for example, you know, you have programs where they consider that people in Vietnam, for example, you've had relocation programs responding to flooding, landslides, riverbank erosion, et cetera, where uh, people were offered re- to relocate but very short distances. So it's a way mm-hmm. of, you know, people. when we say immobile and mobile, it's sometimes people who are immobile or mobile, yeah. it's very small distances, what we call micro-mobilities. So these...
0: Would mean like a mile or two or three, <laughs> like a kilometer. Or two, yes, right? or even very a very few close, hundred
1: yeah. meters, yeah. Um, where we're able to stay close enough to our farmlands but just move our mm-hmm. house um, or where we're able to still go to the same place of worship. We're still able to mm-hmm. visit ancestral burial grounds. Like ancestral burial mm-hmm. grounds are a big one that come up a lot about why people don't, people don't want to leave. They feel that's abandoning their, uh, their homelands or their ancestors. Um, or again, moving people so that the, the sense of community remains intact. And so that loss of culture, that loss of cultural identity that may come with migration um, is addressed. There's also uh, programs that um, have been done in the past that are focused on preparing people to migrate with dignity. So in the Mm -hmm. South Pacific, you've had programs in the past where the focus was not on forcing people to go or forcing people to stay, but recognizing that A warming world is a world in which um, some Pacific Islanders may need to move. And if we're going to move, let's do it with dignity. So let's provide training programs, skills programs, language programs, so that if people want to embark on international migration, they're able to um, do so, but also do so in the best of circumstances. They're able to go to those places, those destinations and you know, plug a gap in the labor market. They're able to speak the language. They're able to integrate um, and also stay connected to their places of origin. So again, that's not forcing anybody to, to move, but it allows people to do so in the best ways. And again, still stay connected to, to the people back home because it's often not about an either or. So some people in the same families may go and then that allows other people to stay. So through those, those dynamics, those remittances that, that we discussed earlier. And again, it's about a, a very dignity-centered, human rights-based approach to how we think about the relationship between climate uh, and human mobility.
0: Uh, we're almost out of time, but before we wrap up, I want to pivot slightly. We've basically been talking about a group of people who are resident in place A, and they live there for all or most of their lives, and then maybe or maybe not, they move to place B. But there are also a large number of people who are always kind of on the move or often on the move, right? Whether they are nomadic populations, people who migrate a lot regularly, um, seasonal labor workers, pastoralists, herders, and you know rural areas, uh, who might be going from point A to B to C to D to E to F all within a couple of months. And then there also, there's also, of course, people who are already going from point A to B, but a climate event happens, a hurricane or a flood or something while they are in between point a and b and so they're going from sub-saharan africa to europe for instance they get trapped in libya whatever i guess how is there a different conversation to be had about those different people who are already on the move and then they are trapped kind of in the midst of their movement or in the midst of their like uh, a mobility interrupted i guess is perhaps a way to think of it i mean what is that another wrinkle how do we how do we conceptualize that? additional angle
1: i think this is a great question because we often slide into this thinking that uh we talk about immobility or mobility that you know people who are immobile have never moved in their lives and the people who are mobile and that's all that they've ever done but there are a lot of groups as you've mentioned for example pastoralists and nomadic groups for whom mobility is the norm and mm-hmm. so if people continue mobile that's not strange And actually, that disruption to their movement can actually be the the problem. And so for them, as we talk about, you know, the loss of culture, the threat to identity, to language, to ways of living that maybe Pacific Islanders face um, when we're talking about migration, we can be talking about those very same threats when it comes to pastoralists and nomadic groups, you know Fulani herders in West Africa, who can no longer move or can't move in the same ways. And now, how do they again treat that in terms of livelihood, but also in terms of culture? How do you maintain a culture based on movement when that movement is taken away? And um, so that, in some ways, are the same risk, but again, very different uh, solutions. And um, because now we have to look at how. How do you reinstill mobility? Um, or how do you adapt um, those ways of living to a sedentary lifestyle? Now, for people who are, you know, we could say, trapped in transit, so people who are mm. going somewhere, um, whether circular migration, or again, for whom mobility may be very normal, um, maybe doing for generations um, based on their livelihood, based on their culture, and who maybe for no, not motivated by environment, but are doing it for economic reasons, whatever, but then okay. face an environmental shock, now are stuck somewhere. So as you said, it might be, in we've seen this in, in Libya, people coming from sub-Saharan Africa and then um, are trapped in, in Libya or uh, trapped wherever they, they may be going by a sudden shock event um, where they lose all of the resources that they had, in order to continue that migration journey, whether that's to return or whether that's to keep going somewhere else. Now it's also, again, a different type of risks because now you're without um, that social support system that you have. You might be without papers. You may be have no access to social services, um, no legal protections. In fact, you might very much want to stay away from uh, authorities or anyone who might um you know, further put you in in danger, or you know again, you might not be able to return, but you want to maybe you want to continue. And so this can also be what we see as um, protracted displacement. So when we talk about people displaced again by conflict, people who are displaced by conflict and then get hit by a flood in a refugee camp, um people who are displaced for more than a year, it's also a form of becoming trapped, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's We can look at it through the mobility lens and that people are displaced or they've already migrated, or we can look at it through an immobility lens, which is, wow, these people are stuck after the initial movement. And so, yeah, there are different risks there. There are, in some cases, little to no protection or, um, again, no social support, no, no way of those people returning. And so... Sometimes those risks are the same, but sometimes they're very unique and, again, uh, require different solutions and different actors uh, at play. Hmm.
0: I could keep going, but I think that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Uh, but this was super interesting uh, and very uh, engaging. Yeah. Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This was a fun conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Caroline Sitgraf is the deputy director of the Hugo Observatory at the University of Liège in Belgium. Uh, she also teaches at EHEX in Brussels and Sciences Po's Paris School of International Affairs. Uh, she helps to run the Habitable Project, which is a comprehensive overview of climate-related migration. They do a bit of everything. Uh, and if you like what you heard and want to keep on touch, keep on keep tabs with what she's up to, uh, she's on Twitter at CKZickGraph. Thank you for listening to Changing Climate, Changing Migration. If you liked my discussion with Caroline, please subscribe to the podcast to catch all of our new episodes. Changing Climate, Changing Migration is available wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating. If you want to hear more, take a look through our archives. You can find them online at migrationpolicy.org podcasts. Also on that page, you will find information about MPI's other podcasts, which I definitely recommend checking out. World of Migration features big conversations about trends in international migration. And Moving Beyond Pandemic provides snapshots of migration and mobility after COVID-19. Subscribe to the Migration Information Source newsletter online at migrationinformation.org. It's 100% free, comes out twice per month, and features articles, analysis, and insights on migration trends worldwide. MPI is on all the major social media platforms, Follow us to stay on top of new publications and events. You can email me directly at source@migrationpolicy.org. At I'd love to hear your ideas for new episodes and anything else you'd like to tell me. Yusuf Hamid produced this episode. Lisa Dixon provided assistance and oversight came from Michelle Middlestadt. Our theme music is Touch by Patrick Petrikios. My name is Julian Haddam. See you next time.